typically there are just some species that you know are, are going to defecate on you when you when you catch them. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Goodness gracious, great balls of Raw Safari. Sorry about that, y'all. I'm just knee-deep in rehearsals for the production of Million Dollar Quartet I mentioned recently and had to make some cheesy reference to it. Anyway, welcome back to the Rasafari Podcast. I'm so glad you're here for another episode. This one starts with a special story, but first, it's that amazing housekeeping stuff y'all love so much. As always, make sure you're following along on Instagram and Facebook at Rasafari. I post pictures daily and add stories every time an episode drops that are relevant to that particular episode. You can also go to www.rossafari.com to learn more about the podcast and a little bit about me as well. Also, I have some merch available at rossafari.redbubble.com. Special shout out to Laura Corello Shank, my newest supporter on Patreon. I'm so grateful that you've decided to take the plunge, and you're going to be glad you did when you get the bonus audio from this episode. There is a lot of cool stuff there. If you're interested in hearing that audio, you can sign up at www.patreon.com slash rossafari. There are a lot of cool perks for patrons, including bonus episodes, the extra interview audio I mentioned above, and stickers. Also, I've decided I'm going to extend my ratings and reviews for conservation effort for a few more episodes. For every five-star rating you leave this podcast on Apple Podcasts, I will donate $2 to an animal conservation organization. If you're willing to write a positive review along with that five-star rating, I'll up it to $5. Also, anyone who does a positive written review and sends me proof to either rossafaripod at gmail.com or messages me proof on Instagram at rossafari will get to vote on what organization gets the money. If you don't use the Apple Podcast app, you can still leave a rating or review through iTunes. Today, I'm going to take you to Ogilvy's Good Zoo in Wheeling, West Virginia, to talk to Dr. Joe Greathouse, zoo director extraordinaire. Despite the fact that the Good Zoo is one of the smallest AZA-accredited zoos in the United States, Dr. Joe and his team do some incredible work. If you've listened to even one episode of this podcast, you know that the zoo world is focused on conservation, but I don't know if I've met anyone who keeps that philosophy more at the center of their decision-making than Dr. Joe. Almost every answer he gives during the interview ties back to conservation. It is legitimately impressive. Along with a focus on conservation, and in part because of that focus, the Good Zoo is known for doing a lot of animal encounters. I know there is a small amount of controversy about animal encounters at zoos, but Dr. Joe made some really great points about the practice. I also want to share a special story about one of my animal encounters that happened right at the Good Zoo. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that I've always loved animals in general, but that my love of red pandas started when I moved to Philly and discovered May Lynn. Shortly after that, I saw Iggy at Atlanta and the family up at Franklin Park Zoo in Boston, and my love blossomed to a full-blown obsession. Zoe and I decided to buy a red panda encounter if we could find one, and the closest to us was at the Good Zoo. We went that day, and our encounter started with meeting Amber, a 16-year-old female who was adorable and awesome, and had been doing encounters for years and was an old pro. Sixteen is ancient for red pandas. Amber was awesome, and we had a great time. After meeting Amber, our guide told us we could try to meet Junji, a younger male. We were told that they had tried a few encounters with Junji, but that he would always run to the back corner of the building and stay away from the people, so to not expect it to work. Obviously, we opted to give it a shot, and, sure enough, Junji ran right past us and hid in the corner, eyeing us suspiciously. The guide was about to wrap it up when I said, wait, give it a second. Can we just sit down on the floor? 
So we very calmly sat down and looked away from Junji while holding out grapes. At first he stayed away, then he very, very slowly started to creep our way. He got just close enough to steal the grape from my hand, then backed away to eat it. He then approached Zoe and took the grape, going less far away. After those two grapes, his defenses were completely lowered, and Junji was all over us. He climbed into my lap, he let us pet him. As a matter of fact, the Rasafari logo that you see is a picture of the first time he let me get face-to-face with him, which happened multiple times that day. That experience completely changed my life, and I feel certain this podcast wouldn't exist without having that amazing experience. As you'll hear in the interview, it apparently meant a lot to Junji as well, because he has become a total rock star when it comes to encounters. Being a small part of his training for that, and knowing the impact it has had on all the other people who meet him and fall more in love with red pandas, and maybe even get involved in conservation efforts, has been a constant source of joy for me. And... As a quick follow-up to this story, Dr. Joe let me duck in and say hi to my old friend after our interview. It was so good to hang out with Junji again. And here, for you now, is some exclusive audio of that moment. The sniffing you hear is Junji taking a very big interest in my handheld recorder and wondering why it isn't a grape. Hi, bud. Do you remember me? I'm going to pretend you do. (laughs) Listen to my voice on that. I'm clearly so excited and so happy. The good zoo is a magical, magical place. Whew. All right. Here it is. My interview with Dr. Joe. Great house. So, um, Joe, thank you for meeting with me. I appreciate it. And thanks for agreeing to do this podcast. Um, tell me who you are and where we are. Sure, so I'm Dr. Joe Greathouse. I am the zoo director at Ogilvy Good Zoo, and I'm also an assistant professor of biology at West Liberty University, um, primarily in, in zoo science classes. Awesome. Very cool. Now, what exactly does it mean to be a zoo director? So as a zoo director, essentially, we're responsible for everything that occurs uh, within the zoo. So we supervise um, all business operations as well as uh, the animal operations. And, and the most important thing is just to ensure that we have a good mission moving forward. The team's all on board with that. And, um, you know, we do our best to, to provide a great experience for our guests as well as for the animals. Very cool. And I noticed that there is a there's a doctor in there. Um, are you a, a vet or are you a PhD or, or where does your doctor come from? I'm a PhD. So okay. I have a PhD in uh, animal nutrition and then my master's was in uh, wildlife and fisheries. So most of the work that I had done other than being in zoos was as a field biologist. Very cool. That's really awesome. Um, as a side note, uh, if you uh, I don't know if you listen to podcasts at all, yeah. but if you check out this podcast, um, my two episodes next week are with a, a animal nutritionist who did work at San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. Awesome. And she gets really deep and really nerdy. We talk about Duana <laughs> and Seacum and all that stuff. So you'll get a kick out of that. Um, but yeah, so that's very cool. So you are here. We are here at the Good Zoo. And uh, this is in West Virginia. For those that don't know, it is a small but rapidly growing zoo, which is very cool. Um, and I, I have to tell you, when I first saw the name Good Zoo, I was like, oh, there's, oh, that sounds like you're trying to convince me you're a good zoo. Um, but then I, I did some research, obviously an AZA accredited facility, highest standards, do great work. So what is the meaning behind the name of the zoo? So the the name, the good zoo um, represents the family, the good family who donated the initial funds to get the zoo started back in the 1970s. Um, and it was in honor of Philip Mayer Good, their son, um, who um, had uh, developed leukemia and, um, they wanted to do to provide funding to build a zoo in his memory. And um, the family still uh, has memberships here at the zoo, still comes to, to visit us. So it's um, been a wonderful partnership and they're a great family um, for us to work with. 
That's really awesome. That's that's such a sweet story. Too bad their name wasn't the Great Family right now, but uh, no. But seriously, that is that's really cool. Um, so I'm curious, as a as a smaller facility, uh, what do you find some of the advantages and challenges of of being a smaller zoo? Um, I, I think with, as a small zoo, some of the advantages that we have are we are able to interact more intimately with our guests and get to know our guests a little bit better. Um, you know. Typically on a busy day for us throughout the summertime, we may only have 1,500 guests through here. So it, it's a pretty um, small facility, but we're on a large footprint. So with that 60 acres, especially during uh, the pandemic right now, we're a great outdoor facility for folks to come and visit and space themselves out um, within the institution and, and get outside and exercise. Um, some of the other benefits of being a small institution is with the pandemic right now, with us having to go to a reduced um, number of individuals that can come in for admission, it, it doesn't really impact us that much because we typically are never near full admission capacity um, right. with, with our size, with that 60 acres in a small community. That's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um and um, and you came from the wilds, which is literally the opposite of a small zoo. Um, so, what was that transition like for you? Um, well, actually, it was it was pretty easy for me because I had started out here at the Good Zoo oh, okay. in in 1998 as an intern and stayed on as a keeper and then as a, an animal curator. And, and during that time, um, it developed um, friendships and worked really well with the Wilds team on some of our conservation projects, primarily um, Eastern Hellbender research in this region. Yeah, I'm really interested in talking about that more. That seems so cool. And. Uh, what ended up happening was I went out there as their uh, director of um, conservation science and then uh, stayed for four years, which was absolutely fantastic. It's an amazing facility, amazing people, some of the best people you'd ever imagine working with. Um, but I was driving back and forth from Wheeling every day oh, wow. uh, to work because I still lived in Wheeling. My family was still here in Wheeling. Um, so after about four years, I, it was a great experience, but an opportunity opened up for me to, to teach at West Liberty. Um, so I came back home. That, that's so great. And now you're here as the zoo director. So that's, that's really, really cool. Um, so what, what exactly do you teach at West Liberty and how does that tie into your uh, work at the zoo here? Um, so at the university right now, I teach zoo ornithology, um, which is primarily focuses on the, the basic ornithology principles, you know, taxonomy, anatomy. Um, but we also teach about how to take care of birds in a zoo. Um, and then during the spring semesters, I usually teach um, zoo animal behavior management. So we talk about things like animal welfare, training animals, and enrichment with animals, as well as different behaviors that you would observe in the wild, as well as uh, with species in human care. That's really, really awesome. Um, yeah, I've noticed that the it seems like in, in the interviews that I've done, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of keepers, um, as well as some other administrative staff and stuff, and it seems like there are just a ton of varied ways to get into this field, but they all involve needing to have some heavy education at some point. Um, and it's so cool that you're doing some specialized stuff to really help with that. Yeah, and, and we started the program because one of the things that uh, I had noticed after being a curator for about 15 years was we had a lot of individuals that were very passionate. Everybody that does this work is very passionate right, about right. their work, but um, they would come in with a basic biology degree. And when you get a biology degree or even a wildlife and fisheries or animal sciences degree, you don't learn a lot about how to take care of animals. You may learn general biological principles. So it typically took about a year to two years to train folks just in the basic components of animal care, as well as making them familiar with um, our accrediting association, with AZA, with some of the wildlife legislation that's associated with uh, working in a zoo as well. Um, so our, our goal with this program is they learn that type of information as part of the academic process, but then they're also required to do internships to where optimally the individuals that graduate from our program have about a year of experience wow. when they graduate as opposed to graduating and then having to acquire that year of experience. Um, so it's almost like a, a co-op program. That's so awesome because I know one of the things I hear constantly is that um, it's, you know, 
everyone wants experience to get that first gig and how does that happen? And, um, I know, so I'm a professional musician. That's what I do for a living. Um, and it's the same thing when I wanted to get into touring, everyone would always say to me, okay, cool. As soon as you get a tour, then maybe we'll let you tour with us. I'm like, but if, if everyone says that, then, you know, so it's really cool that you're giving, uh, that advantage coming out of the program. That sounds like a really good program. And the experience is critical. You, you, it, and from both sides of things, it's beneficial to individuals with our in our profession that we're bringing folks in that are familiar with what they're going to do and know already that yes, this is the way I want to go as a career. But it's very beneficial to the student as well to see, okay, is this something that I really want to do with the rest of my life? Um, or if it is, are there different directions I want to go? Do I want to be a generalized keeper, a specialized keeper? Do I really like education as opposed to animal care? So we, we give them the opportunity to, to learn about that. Um, and then the other thing we do is we offer an apprenticeship program where we uh, have housing on site um, for individuals that have just graduated that may not have that experience um, so it's a six-month experience that we do, and the benefit of that is we offer housing on site for around two hundred and fifty dollars a month, nice. and that include that's your rent, your utilities, all right. of that. Wow. So it's it's challenging because um, it is an unpaid experience, um, but at the same time, we we try to keep those costs as low as we possibly can to where um, you know if you were having to do an internship at a, at a city facility. You know, coming up with a rent and getting a six-month lease and then paying your utilities is, is very, very challenging. Oh, yeah. So we try to keep this as, as compact and as affordable as possible to give folks that initial step into the profession. That is, that's so amazing. Yeah, no, I was, I was literally talking to someone who, who will be in episode soon uh, named Kara who, who was saying, I think at one point she worked three jobs and volunteered at a zoo while working at a zoo, but volunteering in a different section for experience and was just working, you know, seven days a week and, and loving it, but also like, yeah, it's incredibly tough. So that's, that's a really cool program. I, I especially love, um, that you're giving experience in different areas too, because I know my, my secret dream is, is I sometimes think about trying to transition to the zookeeper life because I just, I love animals so much and I love the experiences that I've had with them. And, um, you know, just yesterday, like I was saying, before we started recording, I was at Elmwood Park Zoo and I was helping them clean up their exhibits. And I was, um, using a sump pump and a wet vac because the, uh, the alligator drain didn't go low enough for cleaning it properly and stuff. And I, I was covered in at least four kinds of poop. And, um, it was, it was a real interesting thing to actually get a day of experience because as much as I've always thought I'd, I'd want to do it. Yesterday was the first time that I've ever actually at the end of the day been like, okay, now take a step back and you, you've done some of it. So now you can evaluate, you know, is this something you would, would consider doing? Um, and I, I think that's just amazing. So many people don't get to have that kind of thing. So and the, the experience is critical in this type of uh, profession because every day is different. Every year, every season mm. ends up being incredibly different. So you're constantly learning. And, it, you know, I've, I've been in the profession for almost 25 years and I see something new every single day. Right. I'm sure. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Very cool. Now, um, coming back to the zoo for a moment. So you're not a standalone facility. This is a resort. Um, I've heard it pronounced Ogle Bay and Ogle B, which one is it? Um, typically around this region, we're, we're called Ogle Bay. You typically okay. hear that. And uh, we are a, a resort, one of, a park system as part of the, the Wheeling Park Commission. Um, and we're the largest self-sustaining park commission in the United States. Wow. So what that means is we don't receive any tax funding or, or tax levy to support the park. Um, and everything that we operate off of for our community comes from admissions to the zoo, overnights at the, the lodge or the hotel or cottages, food and beverage opportunities throughout the park. So we operate a, a $30 million facility um, strictly based on folks coming here, learning and having a good time. That's amazing. Very cool. Um, what uh, are there any advantages or any weird, you know, I don't want to use the word disadvantages, but any, any maybe awkward things that other zoos don't encounter, but also any great advantages that come from being a part of that? Um, I, I would say that there are great advantages because 
being in Wheeling, I don't know that we would get a lot of guests just to come to the zoo in Wheeling. But as part of the, the park commission, we have multiple large outdoor swimming pools, riding stables, tennis courts, four different golf courses, adventure course, um, fishing, pedal boats, miniature golf. So we have a wide variety of activities that can attract guests from a little bit larger um, distance away from us to come here to the park commission to, to spend an entire day where the zoo may take you about three hours to get around. If you have all those other opportunities included, it's worth the family uh, making a trip for a weekend. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I saw somewhere online that uh, Wheeling is the fourth smallest city in the country to have an AZA accredited facility. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's really cool. That's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And it's really neat coming here and, and being part of, like just as a guest, you know, coming onto the the land. And I've been here in the winter where you guys have this big Christmas display up and it's all crazy. And um, yeah, it, it, it was really cool. Even just setting up this podcast interview, um, talking to the PR team at the resort, uh, you know, a lot of times smaller zoo PR people are very overwhelmed and stuff. And man, they were on it. They were, it was top notch, which was really cool. So yeah, um, we have an excellent PR marketing team. The commercial production, the signage that they do is unreal for a small facility. No, I will say that. Yeah. The zoo signage here is incredible. Um, I really love, uh, the tribute to Amber, the red panda, uh, down there is really beautiful. And, um, yeah, no, it's all just, it's so well done. And signage to me is one of those things where it really sets great institutions apart from the really good ones. Um, there are places that I go to and I just, I read the signs. I'm like, no, that's just, that's factually incorrect. Or that's, that's not even the right species. And I know sometimes you move things briefly or something, you know, whatever, but, and it's just, it's, I think the education aspect of zoos is so important that, um, you know, really good signage where it connects people to not only the species, but to the individual animals and stuff like that is really powerful. And we do a lot of outreach in the local community with around 13,000 um, students per year, um, excluding the the participation in uh, the zoo science major with West Liberty. Um, but the, the signage as well as um, our interactive programs like the animal encounters are really our best ways to um, facilitate strong educational messaging with our guests and with a lot of guests. Yeah, it makes sense. That's really cool. I'm glad that you guys are so focused on that. It's, it's really cool to see. Um, so before we go into some individual animal things, the last question that I wanted to ask about the general zoo is what is one thing that you wish people knew about the good zoo? Um, locally, the big thing that I like to communicate is, um, that we are self-sustaining. We're one of, you know, a couple of handfuls of self-sustaining zoos in the United States. Um, so the fact that we've been able to develop, um, some of the habitats that we've done over the past few years, um, is a huge, uh, pat on the back to the Ogilvy Foundation, our, our philanthropic wing that supports us. Um, because without a tax levy, we'd never be able to do that if we didn't have such a great philanthropic team. Right. Um, so I think that's really important in the community is that they understand how nice of a zoo they have for such a small community. Um, in general for folks, I, I think some of the messages that get missed sometimes are, um, the fact that our team does invest a lot in conservation with our raptor rehabilitation program. We see over 50 birds per year and provide care to them and potentially get them back to the wild if they're able to be released. Um, the Eastern Hellbender program, we've reintroduced uh, close to 400 individuals back to the wild in the state. Um, of West Virginia and work closely with our other partners throughout the, the U S uh, with, with reintroduction programs. Um, and then now, you know, now we're back involved with red wolves again. So it's another great conservation program that we participate in. Um, and then our animal encounters are just a, uh, hugely popular and a really, um, I think they really display well the amount of care that is provided to the animals and how much our keeper team really cares about those individuals that, uh, that, that we provide care to every day. I mean, if you think about it, we spend more time with 
those animals than we do with our family right. and more holidays with them. So, <laughs> um, so, so. Yes, and I will vouch for that. Having done the, the red panda and sloth encounters, um, they're not only really good experiences and, and well, well worth it, but yeah, no, you can tell exactly how much love and, and care these animals get when you're, when you're a part of that, which is, is really cool. And one thing that I noticed during those experiences is that, um, eyes are definitely on you and, and they're, they're definitely making sure that you're not, you know, they're, they're concerned about the animals and then you having a good time, yes. not the other way around. And, um, I think especially in the age of tiger King and stuff, it's, it's so important to, to, to denote that because it is really all about the animals. Unlike some of these roadside zoos where it's all about making money from people. And it's, uh, I, I'm a, firm believer in the importance of animal encounters for educating um, our, our guests about conservation and about animal care. Um, you know, those are life-changing moments for somebody when they get to go in and meet an animal that they've only been able to, to see on TV. And the only difference between the guest that comes in and that keeper is the amount of experience they have with them. At some point in time, that keeper, that zoo director, that zoo curator, that veterinarian, had a first experience with that type of animal as well. And something um, with that type of experience encouraged them to become the conservation professionals that they are today. So it is a huge kind of gateway opportunity to make folks care about animals and conservation. Um, and for us, from a care standpoint, it's fantastic that we're able to do these encounters with these different individuals because it provides the keeper approximately an hour of observing that animal every day, interacting with that animal each day. When we're talking about bringing other guests in to interact with the animal, historically, when I started working in zoos about 25 years ago, if you saw multiple individuals show up as an animal, that typically meant something like, well, I might be um, getting ready to go through a veterinary procedure, and it may have been a little bit stressful. Right. Now, the animals in our care here at the zoo, and we do encounters with um, the vast majority of the individuals here, um, they're used to seeing multiple guests show up on a fairly regular basis, so they're not stressed out when it comes time for us to do some of our veterinary procedures. If we have to do any maintenance around the facilities, we have very, I would say, chill and relaxed animals because mm -hmm. they are so used to those interactions and people being around them. That's really cool. I've never, ever thought about it from either the perspective of the keepers getting eyes on for an hour or how it, um, well, I guess I have thought a little bit about how it can, can help with, you know, the general animals being around people thing, but Man, that's a really, that's really cool. And that's one thing that, um, you know, we have not, we didn't really talk at all before this interview or anything. We didn't um, email much, but I am just so happy to hear you talking about conservation always. Like, I, I swear, if I asked you about what that binder is over there, you would find a way to spin it back to conservation somehow. It just, it seems like that, that's your main focus here. I, I think that's the primary reason that any of us that work in this profession do the job. We care and we want to make a difference. Um, and, and we go out of our ways and use a lot of our resources to do whatever we can to make a difference for conservation. And for us, we may not be able to donate millions of dollars or thousands of dollars to, to projects, but we invest heavily in the raptor rehabilitation, the hellbender conservation. I think we will um, at some point hopefully play a big role in uh, helping out with the red wolf um, recovery. Um, and, and just communicating those messages to our guests and training tomorrow's professionals through the zoo science major and the apprenticeship program. That's our role in conserving wildlife. That's awesome. And I think, um, you know, you're right. While you, you can't donate millions or whatever, um, I'm, I think that's an incredible amount of work to do. And I think, you know, the most important thing is while it's amazing that places like San Diego Zoo Global can do just all the things that they do, um, I love the fact that my Instagram has gotten people to donate to zoos and Red Panda Network and Sea Turtle Conservancy. And, you know, I've probably raised less than $1,000 through those things over two and a half years. But that's still, you know, a couple hundred bucks I didn't have before. That's that's still really important. Like every little – that's what it takes is little people uh, – not little people, but small amounts of people who can do a small amount of, of stuff 
all being motivated individually, and then it builds the community, and then it's happening on a, on a global scale. Absolutely. And that's startup funding, particularly for new scientists and new biologists, is critical. We've been studying uh, hellbenders in West Virginia since 2004. We were the first institution in the world to hatch them from eggs that had been uh, collected in the wild. Wow. We were the first that have that had done a reintroduction with tracking uh, with those individuals that was reared in human care, identified some of the first streams and rivers in West Virginia that where the species had been documented. Um, and all of that was possible from a $4,000 grant that we got from the West Virginia Division of Wildlife in 2004. So a tiny amount of funding can really be that gateway into to a great long-term project. Right. That's amazing. And that's actually the next question I had was to tell me just all about the uh, Hellbender Reintroduction Program and, and how that works. And um, yeah, tell me about your snot otters. So, so we started studying hellbenders in 2004. And then the, the primary reason we did it, I was the curator of the zoo at the time and we were I had a, a conservation background with uh, doing field work, so I wanted to look at a species that we could work with locally and that didn't have a large home range because the reality of studying it was we, we didn't have a lot of fun. So let's look at you know the amphibians, reptiles, insects in our area that we could potentially study and make a difference. And the hellbender was one that really stood out because we knew there were populations locally. Um, so we started studying them and doing surveys of the region, and we started learning things like some areas, they are a little bit more abundant than what we thought. We were finding new streams and rivers where they occurred. And then during a survey in 2007, we found um, a shelter that had eggs. That was the first time eggs had ever been documented from the species in the state. Um, we couldn't put those back because we had disrupted the, the nest during the survey. So we brought them in, worked with the Division of Wildlife, and we tried to, to rear those individuals. And we were successful um, awesome. raising them. So then th that kind of started a long-term reintroduction program that we've done. And uh, the team at the Wilds works with us. So we go out and do surveys with each other physically. Dr. Spear does uh, eDNA testing where he looks for the DNA from the hellbenders in the water, in the streams, without even having them in your hand. So it's pretty incredible <laughs> technology. And he's one of these guys that's at the forefront of it. Wow. Um, and, uh, the, you know, when we do find eggs, we rear them. We work with the Division of Wildlife and try to put them back in the streams and rivers uh, within this region. When they're right around four years old, um, that gives us the opportunity to grow them to about 100 to 200 grams. And we've seen really strong success in telemetry studies with reintroducing them and surviving when they go back to the wild. Um, so now what we want to do is continue this for about a 10-year period of time and see how much that effort that we put in has really impacted that population over a long-term uh, reintroduction phase. That's really cool. Um, so why do hellbenders matter? Oh, hellbenders are important. They're, they're really a flagship keystone species for our local streams and rivers. They're the largest amphibian in those streams and rivers. Um, they're a primary predator of the crayfish within the streams and rivers. So they, and they've been here for millions of years. So they balance um, that ecosystem well uh, to ensure that we don't see certain species of crayfish maybe overpopulate the stream or overtake other um, species. Um, in the streams where we don't see hellbenders anymore, so those streams and rivers, we're starting to see a, an uptick in mud puppies. Okay. Um, and then in some of the ones where we see hellbender populations decreasing, we see hellbenders and mud puppies together. But the hellbender is really the primary species that occupies that specific microhabitat of large flat rocks within our streams and rivers. Okay, very and they're cool. also kind of a canary in the coal mine for us. Um, the, they let us that they only survive in cooler, faster flowing, clean waters. So they're a great indicator species uh, for the health of the streams and the rivers that in West Virginia we swim in, we fish in, we drink out of. Right, them. right. So it's, they're um, quite literally looking out for you. Yes, that's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and now, uh, so we'll we'll have transition to zoo animals because. Um, 
you guys, there are red wolves here now, but this is also a major conservation project. It's not just like an exhibit animal. Yeah, the, the red wolves are exciting for us to get back into. We had red wolves here at our institution from the early 1980s through about 2007. Um, in the early 2000s, late 90s, we had about 22 pups born, and wow. some of those were involved with reintroductions back to the wild. Um, we, we went away from that for a little while and did African wild dogs, and then we um, cared for cheetahs in that space for a couple of years. And what what we decided with our collection planning was the population of red wolves in the wild was starting to decline again. Um, so, you know, we felt that that was a very valuable program to become involved with. Um, we did have strong experience with a lot of members of our staff. We're fortunate that even as a small facility, we've retained individuals with about 20 years of animal care experience. Wow. Um, so, so they were around when we were breeding the wolves and raising the wolves. Um, so, so we decided to bring them back to, uh, our collection. Um, and, and that's pretty exciting for us. That's, you know, when you hold a red wolf pup and you're one of maybe a few handfuls of individuals that that's ever done that. And you know that this is one of a few hundred individuals on the entire planet that's left. Right. That That's a really cool investment and involvement for an institution. That's awesome. I love that. That is, uh. Wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I know um, that I think it's, isn't it North Carolina that was down to like 30 in the wild? Yeah. The, 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 the primary populations uh, in Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge um, in, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And uh, it, it, the whole population that's remaining started from around 17 individuals. And it's a species that at one time was throughout the southeastern United States. So we would have potentially seen it here in Wheeling hundreds of years ago. Um, and, and now there are fewer than 300 of them left on the planet. So um, it, it's really important for us to try to get involved with that and help uh, conserve that population that's left or bring it back. That's really cool. I'm, I'm so, uh, so grateful to hear that um, even collection, you know, considerations are, are made with, with um, conservation at the forefront. That's really cool. Um, I love to hear that. So um how about, so uh, for those, and I'm sure my intro to this podcast will talk more about my experience uh, with the red pandas here, but um, as a reminder, the uh, the logo, the Rasafari logo is me meeting Junji, which was the first time I met him and Amber, uh, first time I ever got hands-on with a red panda, and it was a life-changing experience, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this podcast would not be happening if that hadn't happened. Um and so, uh, how are Junji and Hamlet doing? And and tell me about their. I guess it's not that new now. Twenty eighteen, I think, was when you guys got the new exhibit. But tell me about the decision to bring them to an indoor outdoor exhibit and how you guys designed that and came up with that because it's very impressive. So, so we made a decision to move the red pandas um, to our main building area, and the, the reason that we did that was uh, they had a large outdoor habitat in their former habitat. But during the summertime, when it routinely gets above 85 degrees here, that's really hot for a red panda. So mm. they need their access to the air conditioning so they can stay cool and we don't have to worry about things like heat strokes. Um, the challenge with that was where we had them housed before and were caring for them. The guests couldn't see them for large portions of the year and really some of our busiest portions of the year. Um, and, you know, as a conservation facility, that conservation education is critical. So what we decided to do was move them to our main building area, but we created indoor habitats with adjacent outdoor habitats so the guests could see the red pandas wherever they decided to go. And then we made multiple indoor enclosures with bridges attaching them um, so the pandas could choose between being outside, being in one indoor enclosure. They can be in a bridge above all the guests. They can choose another enclosure. Uh, it's all about choice to make them comfortable um, with things. So what we thought about was, well, we do a lot of encounters with red pandas, um, from a, from a, from a guest perspective and conservation perspective. But if they want to go away from the guests in the middle of the summer, they would have to go outside if we were doing the encounter inside. So we decided to make sure that we had a second indoor enclosure. So there's always that choice where they're not stressed. Um, Hamlet, when he came, Junji is calmed down and does <laughs> encounters beautifully and interacts with the guests, interacts with the team wonderfully. 
Hamlet, when he came in, was very nervous, Red Panda. Um, so he actually benefited from watching Junji interact with the team and with the guests and watching Amber or, or Red Panda that was 16 years old and ended up passing interact with the team and with the guests. Um, and that's pretty important that they can watch and model that behavior and realize, hey, you know, these, these folks aren't that bad. Um, and, and when Hamlet came in, he was on um, a, a couple of anti-anxiety medications when we'd received him. Um, so we wanted to, to get him off that and get him down to where he was pretty comfortable with us. And at this point in time, Hamlet is entirely comfortable with just about anybody being in his exhibit. He's off all medications. And those encounters where he was able to watch the other pandas interacting with us in a calm manner enabled him to realize that, you know, the, the things were okay. That is so cool. That is such a great story. And yeah, Junji, uh, like I said, when I met Junji, he was in that, you know, not quite ready for humans phase yet. And, um, you know, got, I got to be the one who, who got to, uh, uh, hang out with him. And, um, at first and, uh, the, the work your staff did to get him to that point and then to get um, Hamlet to that point. That's just, that's just so great to hear. That's awesome. And uh, they're, they're doing well. They're, they're happy. They're good. They are. They're, well. they're, they're good. doing incredibly well. And it, you know, it's kind of the, the way that we're going with our collection planning and master planning um, right now with some of the changes with our institution is more space, more complex space, and always the opportunity to have some type of choice. Mm -hmm. We want, the individual that we're caring for to have choice over its environment, over its behaviors each day um, to ensure that they're as comfortable as possible. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Now I have a very important question to ask you about Junji. And as you can tell, I'm going to be very serious on this. <laughs> um, but so I was told that when I initially came that it was spelled J U N J I, but then I saw the sign down there and there's an E at the end. So as the man in charge, I need to know the official spelling of Junji. It is J-U-N-J-I-E. Okay, the that, E is official. That, that's, that's the name that he was given at the institution that he was cared for at before he came to us. Okay. So we never change names. If, if somebody has a name somewhere else, it stays when they come uh, here with us. Uh, you know, we name everybody. Um, just to, from an interaction standpoint, it's better for the keepers. The, mm -hmm. Many of the animals recognize it. Um, now, some of the hellbenders that we're going to reintroduce, we don't name uh, the red wolves that are going to be reintroduced. We don't interact with them the same manner, right, right. Um, primarily because any of those individuals could go back to the wild. So um, that's the one species in the zoo that we don't train. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's so cool though. That's, um, uh, I just, yeah, I need to, I need to book another meet and greet because I need to meet Hamlet, but also I just need to, I just need to say hi to Junji again. That was so life-changing. Um, and so now you guys have opened three new exhibits this year, right? Yes. Um, Red Wolves was one of them. And then you've opened a whole new Africa section with uh, your cheetahs and the African crested porcupines, right? Correct. So tell me all the cool stuff about that. Um, well, the, the, the decision making behind that was we had two habitats there that were nearly um, over 40 years old, uh, North American river otter, otter habitat and uh, North American black bear habitat, which had become an Andean bear habitat. Um, and what we had decided was, you know, we could have redone those exhibits for those species, but this footprint that we had in that particular space for bears, we did not feel that in 2020 that amount of space was appropriate for a bear the way it was in the 1970s. Um, and with our river otter habitat, a lot of work's been done in the wild as well as in human care to say that the otters probably need a lot more terrestrial space than what they need aquatic space. Hmm, interesting. Um, so, so when we looked at it and looked at the changes, we said – but we already have some African species in this region. Let's take this space and really maximize as much of the space as possible. 
um, and make it as large as we potentially can and theme this zoogeographically. Um, so we switched to making a very large habitat for the porcupines. It's probably one of the largest porcupine habitats in the country. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, um, I, cause I just, I ran through the zoo quick before I got here early and I wanted to see animals. And, um, yeah, no, I was honestly confused. And then I was like, no, this said porcupines, Wait, am I at a different exhibit? And I, it's amazing. They have their own little, uh, African market that they can hang out at and um, drums hang in and then like all this space and, and, and yeah, no, it's really beautiful. And, and that's important to us is that space and complexity. There's a lot of different changes in grade, a lot of different changes in texture mm -hmm. um, within that habitat. And then beside that, we decided to take just a large empty space and, and create a, a pretty complex cheetah habitat where we were able to incorporate a lot of the topography um, there into a varying habitat for the cheetahs. And, we did the cheetah move for a variety of reasons. We wanted to give them more space. We thought that it would be better for them to be above the guest sight line as opposed to in a habitat where guests looked down at Absolutely, them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and in their habitat, they can look down across the guest pathway now and see zebras and see ostrich. And you know, we thought that would be best for them and that they would um, get used to that exhibit fairly reasonably quickly after we moved them. Within a couple of days, we saw them become incredibly relaxed, actually more relaxed than they were in the exhibit that they'd lived in for a few years. And now primarily, you know, we, we struggle to get them up and, and, <laughs> and, and moving because they just want to go out and sleep on top of their giant log or in their giant log, <laughs> um, roll around in, in the, the sand area that we made for them. Um, so that's been great for us, um, to see that they have adapted to that habitat and definitely enjoy that habitat more yeah, than, that's really cool. than where they were previously. Um, the other big component of that construction was historically we had a pretty steep grade that the guests had to go up to get to our otter and bear exhibits and steep grades are fairly common in West Virginia, but we want to make sure that the zoo is accessible and as inclusive for everybody as possible. So instead of thinking about ways to get the guests to the animals, we thought about ways to get the animals to the guests. So we brought the animal exhibits down as close as we could to those guest pathways um, and that really ties in well with our, our playground renovation. So we renovated our playground facility um, and made sure that uh, we incorporated an ADA accessible structure. So it's one of the few fully ADA accessible playgrounds with a ramp system. Um, so every child in Wheeling uh, has the opportunity to play here. That's really, really great. Do you find, do you guys uh, in the, the zoo world in general do the whole um playgrounds and carousels and stuff just because you want to make like learning also be fun so kids want to come back is that is that why you spend that space on those types of things would you say or? there's a variety of reasons you know carousels are definitely an important revenue piece especially for for small institutions um for when the guests come through because it's it's another way that we can help afford to pay for the animals um, and it is a fun experience for every kid loves to, to ride a carousel and adults. Yeah, like, my mom like really loves them. Yes. Um, but for, from the playground perspective, uh, I have very um, strong feelings, as does our team, that it, it's critically important for kids to exercise, especially in West Virginia when we're at typically number 48, 49, 50 um, in nutrition and obesity and heart disease and diabetes rates. Um, it, we really encourage the, the, the kids to come here and play as much as possible throughout the whole park system. That's awesome. Um, that, that's pretty critical to us. Um, and in addition to that, you know, when we do our camps, we build in a requirement of where the kids have to be physically active every day. And typically they're going to walk about a mile to two miles a day while they're here. They're going to swim at least one afternoon while they're here. They're going to do the adventure course while they're here. Um, cause it's important for, again, for our next generation of West Virginia's or generation of leaders that, uh, you know, we have individuals that are healthy. Mm -hmm. That, um, the thing that has stood out to me the most in all of this interview is just how thoughtful you are and how, how much thought goes into literally every decision. I'm, I'm honestly really impressed. Um, the good zoo is very lucky to have you. And I'm sure you're lucky to have them too. Don't get me wrong. I know it's, it's mutual, but, um, 
Yeah, no, I'm really, I'm impressed. We're lucky to have a very, very good team that's been around for for a long time. When you think about how long keepers stay around mm-hmm. and, and curators stay around, um, and and that's the the benefit of being part of a team is there are lots of good ideas here. Sure, that's really cool. Okay, so we'll wrap up the uh, the official part of the interview here, and then we can take our walk. But um, before we do that, I have I have a tradition. And uh, you might have to dig back to the keeper days a little bit for this one. But I like to end each um, interview with what I call a poop story. And it doesn't actually have to be poop, but something disgusting, funny, but that, you know, doesn't put an animal in a bad light, but shows like, yes, this is how much we love animals that I got crapped on and it was still the greatest day ever. (laughs) Something like that. So tell me some funny, gross story. You know, typically there are just some species that you know are going to defecate on you when you when you catch them um you know swans when you when you catch them and you do a physical exam lemurs um it's almost a guarantee don't have anything valuable in your pockets because because the poop's going to go in your pocket (laughs) but uh probably the grossest thing that ever happened happened to me about two weeks ago so we were uh getting our eastern hellbenders that we're reintroducing to the wild um prepared to go back to the wild. So we do put a, a pit tag in each individual uh, microchip so we can identify them. And that's important because we can see how much they've grown and where they've moved w- when we take them back to the wild. Um, and then we were doing disease testing. So we, we swabbed them with a, a cotton swab um, to look for the presence of the amphibian chytrid fungus. And as I was swabbing one of the hellbenders, uh, its cloaca was aimed right at me. And it hit me with explosive diarrhea pretty much from my chest to my forehead <laughs> all in one shot. They, they, uh, we had an apprentice helping us, and she was horrified because I think she thought <laughs> she did something wrong, you know, blasting the, the zoo director with feces from from head to chest. But uh, we, we finished working him up, and I said, we're going to have to take a time out so I can go clean off now. <laughs> and, That's amazing. Uh, went and cleaned it off, but uh, it, it was pretty impressive. That's awesome. Such a, a small uh, but, but ferocious uh, cloaca. Yeah. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I had never seen projectile diarrhea from a uh, salamander before. Wow, that's amazing. Cool. Well, thank you again for sure. taking the time. <laughs> After the interview, Dr. Joe and I walked through the entire zoo recording as we went. He showed me the behind-the-scenes area of the new cheetah enclosure, and it was amazing to see how relaxed and content those cats were. We also went in and fed the African-crested porcupines and explored their new, amazingly large exhibit. The whole time, Dr. Joe kept anyone looking at the exhibit engaged, sharing his message of conservation as well as just thanking them for being at the zoo. We also met some wallabies, kangaroos, lemurs, and of course, the red panda re-encounter I mentioned at the top of the episode. If you'd like to hear some audio from that zoo walkthrough, you can check out patreon.com slash rossafari. I'm so incredibly grateful to Dr. Joe and the whole team at the Good Zoo. Find them on Instagram at O-G-L-E-B-A-Y Good Zoo or online at www.oglebay.com. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.